from the newsroom of the Washington Post. ¿Cómo está? Te habla Elisa Hernández del Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with the Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, February 8th. Today, the case against former President Donald Trump and why we should all be wearing two masks. On Tuesday, the second impeachment trial of Donald J. Trump is set to begin. Roz Helderman is a political enterprise reporter for The Post. He was impeached and had a trial back in January of 2020. The United States Senate, then controlled by Republicans, acquitted him. Now we're going to see that process again. He was impeached by the House of Representatives shortly before he left office. And now... I sadly am with a heart broken over what this means to our country of a president who would incite insurrection will sign the engrossment of the article of impeachment. Now, former President Trump will have his day in court before the Senate this week. And what do we know about what this trial is going to look like? One thing is that what happens in this trial is entirely determined by the Senate itself. And those negotiations are still underway, even on the eve of the trial. So we don't actually precisely know exactly what will happen. There will certainly be long periods of time for each side to argue its case while members of the Senate sit on the floor. We do expect the case to be somewhat shorter than the first impeachment. We know that one of the lawyers for former President Trump is an observant Jew who has asked to take a Saturday, the Sabbath, off of the procedures, and the Democrats have indicated they will give him that courtesy. So we do not expect to see any action on Saturday. A major issue this time is going to be whether or not the Senate hears from witnesses. People may remember this was a big issue last time. This has all been a little different because last time there was this whole procedure in the House prior to the House voting on impeachment, where the House brought in all these witnesses and conducted hearings with them. Was there a quid pro quo? As I testified previously, with regard to the requested White House call and the White House meeting, the answer is yes. What I heard was inappropriate. I found the July 25th phone call unusual. It's not what we recommended the president discuss. When it got over to the Senate, Democrats really wanted to present additional witnesses. There was this whole issue people may remember about John Bolton and would he testify or would he not? And the Senate Republicans voted against that. So there were no witnesses in the Senate in the first impeachment trial. This time is different for a bunch of reasons, including that there were no witnesses heard from in the House, but also this time... Democrats control the Senate. So it's actually up to them to decide whether or not they want to hear from witnesses. But one of the things we're seeing is a real tension uh, amongst Democrats about how best to proceed here, because some really want to put on a full case and bring in witnesses and have a lot of testimony and present documents and put on the uh, strongest case possible against former President Trump. Others believe that uh, no matter what 
case is put on. Senate Republicans are not going to vote to convict the former president. And in the meantime, there's a lot of things the Senate could be doing that it's not doing. It's not passing a COVID relief plan. President Biden still has some nominees who need to get confirmed. Uh, You know, the business of the nation is put on hold while this trial is conducted. So there's some inherent tension there. Do you do you call witnesses or do you do this uh, sort of tight and efficiently and speedily? And the charge that President Trump is going to be facing is incitement of insurrection. Do we know what the arguments are that Democrats are going to make in supporting that charge? Sure. They're, they're going to make two arguments. One is that if you look at the president's speech to the crowd on the ellipse at the White House that morning, the morning of January 6th. But I said something's wrong here. Something's really wrong. Can't have happened. And we fight. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. That the language of his speech was incitement, that it incited the crowd, riled them up and sent them down to the Capitol to pressure Congress and ultimately to act violently. So we're going to, we're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I love Pennsylvania Avenue. And we're going to the Capitol and we're going to try and give, the Democrats are hopeless. They're never voting for anything. Not even one vote. But we're going to try and give our Republicans, the weak ones, because the strong ones don't need any of our help, we're going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country. So let's walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I want to thank you all. God bless you and God bless America. Thank you all for being here. This is incredible. Thank you very much. But they're going to make a broader argument. They're, they're going to say it's actually not just about the speech that morning, uh, that in fact, his entire course of conduct, beginning with the election, essentially made the violence inevitable on the morning of January 6th. Just this morning, Monday morning, we have the full brief from the defense. And so from that, one of the things we've learned is that they're really focusing on, Trump's lawyers are really focusing on the speech he gave that morning and arguing that by the standards of criminal law, you can't show that that speech incited the crowd to violence. So I think one of the big sort of dividing lines that we're going to see is, should we look just at the speech and the exact words of the speech and whether or not people were incited to violence by it, or because this isn't a criminal trial, it's a it's an impeachment process. We're looking at the the president uh, and whether or not he fulfilled his duties under the Constitution, not just at whether he broke the law. So, in that kind of trial, should we be looking at everything he said and did for the months leading up to that day, as well as what he said on that morning? Hmm. So, there is a world in which there's also discussion about all the steps that President Trump took to try to overturn the results of the election, to influence and pressure people to uh, make different decisions in terms of certifying the election, that that could be part of the conversation. Absolutely. If you look at the 80-page brief that the House impeachment managers filed last week in preparation for this trial, a great deal of that brief has to do with things that happened before the then-president's speech, as well as the actions he took after the riot began. 
So that they want to argue that he incited the crowd to insurrection, not just by his speech that morning, but by everything he said and did, including the call with the Secretary of State of Georgia and the efforts to pressure local officials to overturn the election. So what are we going to do here, folks? I only need 11,000 votes. Fellas, I need 11,000 votes. Give me a break. Uh, You know, we have that in spades already. Or we can keep it going. But that's not fair to the voters of Georgia because they're going to see what happened. All of that was part of his incitement and that you can tell that he was pleased with how the crowd responded by his slowness in reacting that day and his slowness in coming out and saying that the crowd should go home. You know, I'm really curious about what you said in terms of the rift between Democrats in Congress over whether or not they should try to go all in on this trial, bring in witnesses, make this kind of the most fulsome version of itself, or just try to get this done quickly. And I'm wondering, for for the Democrats who want to bring in the witnesses and want to have really long and weighty arguments about this, what do they see as the goal here? Like, if there's not really an expected world where there are going to be enough Republicans in the Senate who vote to convict the president, then what do they see as a potential of, of, of what they could achieve? I think there's a fear among some Democrats that former President Trump is already regaining his political balance from the events of January 6th, that he's already regaining his stature within the within the Republican Party. And they want to put on the case for the nation. They want to remind people what that day felt like, to tell people, to explain to people what it was like inside the building that day. I should say that that some people who really want to put on a compelling case also believe it should move rapidly. You know, there's a way to put on this case in a very compelling way that would not have to take weeks. And, you know, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries actually spoke with our colleague David Ignatius earlier today talking about what to expect from the impeachment trial. And you obviously know that he was actually an impeachment manager for the last trial against Donald Trump. Now, this is a straightforward case in my view. And in my communications with the impeachment managers, I simply have said, lay out the facts in a compelling way. And Jeffries kind of got to this question of what is the strategy for Democrats here and what they are hoping to achieve. And David, I would just say that one of the things that's interesting about being an impeachment manager, and it was a great honor, is that there are two audiences. Uh, Yes, you have to speak to the Senate sitting as a court of impeachment, but at the same time be cognizant Uh, that you are also talking to the American people. And I think our House impeachment managers in the second trial are going to do a tremendous job in focusing on both. What do we expect to see from Trump's defense team, both in terms of the arguments that they're going to make and also the evidence that they're going to provide? Uh, They're going to make two major arguments. The, The first is going to be a constitutional argument. They're going to assert that under the United States Constitution, this is an invalid process because Donald Trump has left office. They say impeachment is a process that is reserved for current office holders. The Constitution envisions two punishments for a person who has been impeached and convicted. One is that he's removed from office, and the other is that she's barred from future office holding. So they would point out that the fact that one of those punishments is no longer available, he can't be removed from office because he's already out of office, is a sign that the Constitution does not intend for former office holders to be impeached and convicted. 
Does that argument hold any water? Like, what do constitutional scholars say about this, whether that's like a real thing? Yeah, there's debate about this. There are constitutional scholars who agree with that point of view. There are also constitutional scholars who say the opposite. And this is one of those things that's never been tested in court. You know, if the Senate were to convict Donald Trump, I would anticipate that his team would file a lawsuit and would argue that the conviction was unconstitutional and would ask the Supreme Court to weigh in on that question. That's never happened before. And so we don't know, we don't know how they would rule. So that was the first kind of line of argument that we expect to see from Trump's defense team. What else do you think we're going to hear them argue? Yeah, then they're going to try to confront the the merits of the case. And what they're going to say is that If you look at what Trump said that day on January 6th, it does not constitute insurrection. He did not urge the crowd to break into the Capitol. He did not tell them to take up weapons. He didn't urge them to do violence. He did talk about marching to the Capitol. But at one point, he said specifically that they should do so peacefully. He did talk about the need to fight. But in a brief they just filed today on Monday, his defense team goes through a long recitation of how common it is to use the word fight in a political context. And it is not commonly agreed that simply saying in a political speech that people should fight is, you know, intended to incite violence in them. Basically, what they're doing is they're using the criminal standard. What would a prosecutor have to prove in court to prove that a person gave a speech that incited violence? And that is indeed a very high bar in this country. You know, we we don't believe in, in putting people in jail for speeches unless you can really prove they incited people to violence. And so they offer some thoughts on that criminal standard and say that the president's speech falls short of it. Of course, what we're going to hear from the Democrats is this isn't a criminal trial. We're not trying to put him in jail. This is a different standard entirely. It's a political standard. It's a constitutional standard. And the question is, has he violated the oath of his office through high crimes and misdemeanors, a phrase that's never really been fully defined? Has he violated that to such an extent that he should not hold public office in the future? That's the punishment they're considering, a bar against holding future office ever again. What's interesting about this impeachment trial is it's also happening at the same time as so many of the people who participated in this riot are facing criminal charges for what happened on January 6th. So I'm wondering if the impeachment trial will affect their prosecution or vice versa, if what we're seeing in court in terms of the charges brought against some of these rioters, if that could influence what we see as part of the impeachment trial. Yeah, we had a story just this morning looking at some of the evidence that criminal prosecutors have been starting to put forward in court about some of these people charged with crimes that maybe the House impeachment managers might pick up and use in their in their case. Because, you know, you do have social media posts, interviews, in some cases, interviews with FBI agents that are being cited in these documents. And what you see over and over again in those documents is people who say, that they came to Washington that day because they felt called to action by President Trump, specifically by his calls that they needed to be there and do something about the election. There are some cases of people who specifically said that they stormed the Capitol because they believed that they were being instructed to do so by Donald Trump. 
For others, it's a bit broader and it's more that they felt like they had to be there and do something because Donald Trump was telling them to do so. I also think that that argument is going to be really interesting to see how it plays out in court. Uh, so, so you know, that, that's how it plays out, um, these criminal charges in the impeachment trial. Uh, the impeachment trial and the notion that Donald Trump is really to blame for what happened could also play out in court as defense attorneys try to argue essentially that their clients didn't think they were doing anything wrong because they felt like the president of the United States, the commander in chief, the nation's chief law enforcement officer had told them they had a right to be there and had told them that they could go into the Capitol. I think that's going to be a little bit of a difficult argument for a lot of these people. You know, there were signs posted they weren't supposed to be there. There were police off. There were barricades they were pushing over. There were police officers they were fighting against. I think it's a little hard to argue that you uh, that they really believed they had a right to be there because Donald Trump told them so. But I do expect that we're going to see a good bit of that in some of these court cases. And I think that is interesting if you have kind of these parallel forms of prosecution, one an impeachment trial, one a, a regular criminal prosecution of, of the people who participated in this, that they're kind of trying to blame each other for what actually happened. Yeah, absolutely. Although, of course, remember that the consequences for each are so dramatically different. The rioters who actually went into the Capitol and broke the law are being subjected to criminal prosecution where the consequences are, you know, the literal loss of liberty. They, they could be put in prison for, for some of them for lengthy periods of time. What's on the table for former President Trump is a much smaller, uh, though important consequence, the consequence of whether or not he can hold elected office again in the United States. Roz Helderman is a political enterprise reporter for The Post. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it. And why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. Monarchmoney.com slash podcast. And now one more thing about why two masks are better than one. So double masking is a rising recommendation because there are three uh, primary coronavirus variants that are of concern right now. Fennett Nirapil is a health reporter for The Washington Post. One was first identified in the United Kingdom, the other in South Africa, and the other in Brazil. In all three of those countries, we've seen major stress on hospitals and spikes in cases that experts believe are linked to these variants. So the concern is in the United States is even though the variants that we have confirmed are low in number, because they are believed to be more transmissible, they can spread and become the dominant strain in the United States by March. 
Well, Dr. Fauci made the argument that double masks, of course, are going to provide extra protection over a single mask. So if you have a physical covering with one layer, you put another layer on, it just makes common sense that it likely would be more effective. And that's the reason why you see people either double masking or doing a version of an N95. He kind of walked that back uh, the next day on a CNN town hall appearance with the CDC director where he emphasized following CDC guidance instead. And CDC guidance doesn't call for double masking or wearing surgical masks. But when the science comes along and tells us that it is better or not, then you will see a recommendation being made by the CDC. But we are seeing other experts, such as the former director of the CDC, Tom Frieden, suggesting that the time has come for Americans to wear second masks. And it's starting to trickle down a bit more on the local and state level, even though uh, local public health authorities often take their signals and guidance from the CDC. That said, the CDC has signaled that they are reviewing this uh, guidance and other guidance related to the pandemic since we have a new administration So we are waiting to see if the CDC revisits mask guidance. Fennett Nirapil is a health reporter for The Post. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. As the impeachment trial begins this week, consider going back to listen to our Post Report's deep dive into the events at the Capitol on January 6th. That episode gives a moment-by-moment breakdown of the riot with voices that you may not have heard before and insights into the events at the center of the impeachment trial. That episode of Post Reports is called Four Hours of Insurrection. You can find a link to it in today's show notes and at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 